This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Thanks for such a warm introduction, and, and thank you for uh, arranging this whole thing for me to give this little presentation here. It's a uh, at the uh, scholarship at Villanova series. And I was really looking forward to this. We were scheduling it, and I was hoping that it would coincide with the release of the Vodka Politics book. Uh, it should be out now. I, I think, I, I don't know how many times I've said, I, you know, it should be out by now. Uh, but um, I'm hoping it should be out in the next month, two months, uh, but most definitely before the Sochi Olympics, because by that time, you know, the window of opportunity is gone to talk about these things in any meaningful way. So, uh, so thank you so much uh, for, for your kind words of introduction. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the book uh, today, Vodka Politics um, and the, the Secret uh, Alcohol Autocracy and the Secret History of the Russian State. Uh, and in particular, I wanted to highlight a couple of chapters and some of the things I discussed in the, the later chapters about contemporary Russian politics in uh, Vladimir Putin's Russia. So, um, so uh, that's why I called it, obviously, Understanding Putin's Russia through the bottom of the bottle. And that's kind of the way that I envision this whole uh, book project. It's recasting a light on sort of centuries of Russian history uh, and looking through the bottom of the bottle. I, I conceive of it as uh, vodka politics as like, as like beer goggles for Russian history. Uh, except when you put them on, everything becomes much clearer, strangely. Uh, and you can see, uh, get more insights into different elements of Russian uh, history and politics, which might be, uh, which might not have been so clear before. So. Uh, so I'll spend a couple of minutes, probably the first half, talking a little bit about the book in particular, uh, some of these general themes about Russia's past, uh, and then we'll kind of change gears and look into uh, sort of the, the contemporary present of, of, of Russian politics, uh, and then conclude by looking forward into the future and to the extent to see which uh, alcohol um, has a very large uh, impact on sort of the, the future prospects of Russia going forward. So, um, and one of the first things that uh, obviously if you write a book about Russians and drinking, uh, and as I, I had a, an article in the New York Times uh, this summer about Russians and drinking that got translated into Russia, I was curious to see as sort of an outsider what Russians would think about that. And, and as you can probably imagine, the response was, oh great, American talking about vodka. Don't forget the bears and the balalaikas. And, you know, so there is something about you know, a very crude stereotype that you have to confront very early on, this, the notion of this whole drunken Russian. Um, you know, and and it's, uh, it's all over the place, even the Simpsons, you know. It's a very uncomfortable situation to be in. So that's, uh, and so the question that comes up first and foremost is, is, is there any truth behind that? Or what is the truth behind that? How much uh, do they drink in Russia? If this is, you know, sort of the image that is portrayed. Uh, a couple of years ago, the World Health Organization put out a report on alcohol in the world uh, and looked at every single country on, the, on earth. And essentially it boils down to uh, Russians drink 15.7 liters of pure alcohol per person per year. Um, and that's very abstract. I mean, you can't really wrap your mind around what that means. And so I, I uh, in an op-ed piece I did for the so Moscow. This is not me. No, no, this is, this is reality. Uh, to, but I, I divided things out and looked at um, uh, essentially how much uh, in individuals drink and sort of, you know, took out the proportion of people who don't drink, you know, children, uh, abstainers, and so on. Um, and uh, divided it out based upon how much different types, you know, wine, beer, um, you know, and, and distilled spirits that people drink, uh, and essentially boiled down to this. Uh, to, to wrap your mind around 15.7 liters of, of alcohol per capita, that'd be the same, of, uh, same as, as drinking two bottles of vodka and 13 bottles of beer week in, week out, uh, for every average drinker in, in, in Russia, which is just astonishing. So if you're only drinking, you know, 13 beers and one bottle of vodka a week, you're behind the curve and you really need to step up your game. Um, so it's pretty bad is, is what it is. And this leads to some uh, very obvious um, health concerns, uh, sort of safety concerns, crime concerns as well. Uh, it's the single largest contributor to uh, Russian mortality. Uh, and a, an exhaustive study that was published in The Lancet a couple of years ago uh, essentially concluded that alcohol itself in Russia contributes to the death of over half a million people every single year. And so it's the single largest killer of Russians, especially male Russians uh, in sort of the, the Middle Ages, uh, I guess middle, uh, <laughs> not, not elderly, not young, or in that, in that midsection. Um, so in 2009, then President Dmitry Medvedev uh, initiated sort of an anti-alcohol campaign, looking at uh, the, the amount of alcohol that was being consumed. Um, and he essentially looks at this addiction and called it a natural disaster. 
um, and so institute some, some anti-alcohol uh, campaigns. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later on. Um, and I sort of agree with that. In some, you know, I, I half agree with it. Yes, uh, alcohol, I believe, is a disaster for Russia uh, to the extent that you had the societal alcoholization. Um, but there's nothing natural about it. Um, and so a lot of people suggest that you know, the question of why do Russians drink uh, to that extent, some people say, well, it's part of the Russian soul, it's part of the genetic code, or something inherently Russian about drinking that kind of, uh, that, that quantity of alcohol. And I suggest no, there's nothing natural, nothing genetic about this. In fact, it's a, this outcome is a result of political and economic decisions that are at the heart of autocratic statecraft in the Russian context. And I'll spend a little bit of time sort of exploring that uh, and what that means for us uh, more generally. So, so uh, you're from Russia, huh? Duh. You drunk yet? Duh. So uh, you got these <laughs> stereotypes. So, uh, so this is the book. It, like I said, it should be out by now. This was going to be like the big coming out party, but it's not out yet. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, it'll be out later on. Uh, but one of the things that they incorporated into the, the, uh, the, the cover uh, art of the book, which I really enjoy, is one of my favorite pictures of all time. And, and this obviously is uh, Joseph Stalin uh, and his Politburo entourage. And this is kind of how I, I begin the book, by uh, looking at some little vignettes, historical vignettes, of life in uh, Stalin's inner circle. And this is essentially uh, a picture, uh, one of the very few pictures that you have of, of Stalin and his Politburo colleagues of, uh, you know, one of the m largest uh, collection of, of mass murderers in history. I mean, these guys are horrible. You know, some of the th things that they did in terms of their totalitarian reign uh, are just crazy. Um, so we've got Stalin, obviously, there. You've got Nikita Khrushchev. Uh, you've got Beria, head of the KGB. Molotov, the, you know, the foreign, uh, uh, foreign uh, ambassador. Uh, Malenkov, the, you know, the heir apparent, Mikoyan, and so on. Uh, you know, the, the guy who constructed the whole, you know, Ukrainian terror famine, that whole thing. Um, and so you've got this interesting picture of them all, and I'm uh, fairly certain that they're drunk in this picture. It's, uh, you can, I don't know if you can see, but it looks like Stalin is dragging his feet a little bit here, and obviously they're holding Berea up. And, I mean, Khrushchev, he's got his belt up to his nipples here. I mean, who does that if they're sober? Um, but, uh, you know, I spent some time looking at this because uh, Khrushchev, I after he... Essentially, uh, after Stalin dies and Khrushchev comes into power, uh, he's there for 10 years before he gets booted out of power. And he's the only Russian leader ever to not die in office up until that point. Uh, and so when he's in retirement, he's got these old reel-to-reel -reel tapes and he uh, conducts his uh, interviews, essentially his, uh, his memoirs onto these tapes. And he spends a lot of time talking about what it was like to live in this kind of viper pit of, of the Politburo at that point in time. Um, and so I just got a couple of, of quotes here that I'll, I'll share with you. And a lot of them revolve around the fact that high politics in the Soviet Union always revolved around Stalin's dinner table. And they'd have these banquets that would start at you know, sunset usually, and then would go straight through to the dawn. And they would do nothing but drink the entire time. So Khrushchev recalls, almost every evening the phone rang, come on over, we'll have dinner. Oh, and those were dreadful dinners. We would get home towards dawn, and yet we'd still have to go to work. I would try to reach the office by 10 a.m., and during the lunch break, take a nap, because there was always the danger that if you didn't sleep, he'd call you again and come to, get, to, come to dinner, and you would end up dozing off at his table. Things went very badly for people who dozed off at Stalin's table. <laughs> and so it becomes this sort of air of like a, as I call it in the book, sort of a, a, a frat party with the devil. You can't not drink because Stalin's making sure that you're drinking, so that you reveal sort of any sort of hidden plots that you know, might be uh, plotting against him, that you might reveal yourself. Um, and there was really no way out of it. And so, uh, you know, uh, Khrushchev goes on and on. He says, he literally forced us to drink. Among ourselves, we had brief discussions about how to bring the supper or dinner to an end more quickly. Sometimes before supper or dinner, people would say, well, what's it going to be today? Will there be a drinking contest or not? Well, we wouldn't, didn't want to have such contests because we had work to do, but Stalin deprived us of that opportunity. Stalin himself would just drink a glass of cognac or vodka at the beginning and then just sort of sit back with some wine. But everybody felt repelled by this. It made you sick to your stomach. But Stalin was implacable in this manner. And it's true. Like, pretty much every one of these guys and everybody else that was in the sort of the broader Politburo was a drop-dead alcoholic. Uh, some of them, you know, the, the Georgi Kulik died at the age of 46 from, uh, from liver disease. A lot of the guys died from kidney disease. Uh, 
and it's not because they were naturally predisposed to drinking. Uh, Khrushchev was actually very temperate before he got to know Stalin and get into this whole thing. But they were part of an autocratic system that encouraged drunken excess. Um, and that's one of the elements that I see as kind of a parallel, not only at the interpersonal level at these high levels of, of uh, Politburo politics, but also sort of as a metaphor for state society relations. Much of the autocratic system that you have throughout Russian history, and not just at the Soviet period, but also in the pre-Soviet, so the, uh, the Russian Empire, uh, and afterwards as well, is a system that encourages drunken excess. Um, so there's, like I said, there's nothing genetic about this. This is political and economic uh, decisions that are sort of manifest themselves in, in Russian culture. Um, one of the reasons why is that uh, going back to the imposition of the Tsar's Tavern, the Kabaks, in uh, 1551 under Ivan the Terrible, uh, pretty much since that time, Alcohol has been a monopoly of the crown, and it is incredibly lucrative. And for the Im Russian Empire, it uh, contributed upwards of a third of all government revenues came from the sale of vodka. Uh, and even into the Soviet period, where they didn't have income tax and they didn't have a lot of financial, other financial instruments, even in the 1980s, the receipts from the vodka tax um, and the vodka monopoly in, in Russia in the Soviet Union uh, constituted up to a quarter of the entire Soviet superpower that, uh, that we realized. And both of these regimes realized if at any point in time the large majority of people sobered up, uh, the country itself would go bankrupt. And so this became a part of the system of encouraging people to drink so that you know, the system props itself up, but also trying to at the same time tamp down the, the externalities, the excesses, the, the, you know, the crime and, the, uh, and the, the bad outcomes that come with that. Um, plus, it also helped that, uh, a lot of people have suggested this, that uh, you know, if you're the sole um, bartender to a you know, country of 180 million, uh, it also keeps them a little bit like the people in Stalin's inner circle, you know, atomized, unable to uh, mount a collective um, resistance to the power of the autocracy. And so uh, that's kind of what I talk about in terms of vodka politics, are these three different elements, those leadership rivalries, uh, the importance of alcohol to state finances, and uh, sort of the atomization and uh, uh, preventing Russia f and the Soviet Union from having sort of a, a lively and vibrant uh, civil society. So we'll put those guys back there on the front. And it's kind of where the book starts. And then from there, I, I kind of take a loop backwards in history, going all the way back to uh, Ivan the Terrible. And look at the role of alcohol in these different uh, historical epochs. Uh, because just like Stalin kept all the people in his inner circle drunk to keep them you know, uh, from, from mounting a uh, challenge to his rule, uh, same with uh, Ivan the Terrible and his boyars. Uh, he liked to get, keep everybody drunk. And he liked to drink and fornicate and do all sorts of horrible, atrocious things himself. Uh, so I spent some time looking at the parallels uh, between Stalin and Ivan the Terrible. That's uh, chapter three. Chapter four looks at uh, Peter the Great. And we like to think of him the great as this great progressive, this great uh, visionary, this great modernizer. But as it turns out, he has a lot more in common in terms of personal temperament uh, with, uh, with Ivan the Terrible. Still, in fact, if, I think if you were to take all the Russian leaders throughout Russian history and line them up as to who could drink the most, I think Peter the Great probably takes the cake. The guy drank uh, incredible amounts of, of alcohol. Um, it's already hard even to tell how much uh, he, he drank because you know the, the suggestions are, are far beyond what would poison a normal human being is the kind of stuff he was drinking on a normal day, if you, be, if you believe those sorts of accounts. Um, so I spent some time looking at, at Peter the Great. Uh, then we get into the 18th century where you have um, a lot, this is the century where you have all of Russia's uh, empresses, all the, the queens of, of Russia uh, come in. And in most cases, uh, the way that you get onto the uh, I guess into the uh, the throne if you are a woman in Russia, especially in 18th century Russia, is that you have to be able to play the game of politics really well. You've got your courtiers, you've got uh, you know these different factions, and you have to play them off against one another. Uh, and one of the things that they did really well, and I focus particularly on Catherine the Great, uh, is to use a lot of alcohol to win over the troops, to win people over to your side with promises of more alcohol, and that's how you sort of ride your way to uh, to the throne. So that's. Uh, you know, the first couple of chapters of the book are kind of these, these vignettes of different historical leaders. Um, chapter six kind of changes things up quite a bit, you know, and uh, looks at the origins of, alcohol, uh, of vodka in particular. Um, there's a lot of dispute about this, um, and this particular chapter involves quite a bit more sort of uh, investigative journalism than I'm, I'm, I'm used to, uh, looking into the origins of alcohol. Because if you believe sort of the conventional account, the one that's authored by this uh, Russian historian, uh, Vilyam Pokhlubkin, uh, 
alcohol, uh, excuse me, vodka originated in uh, Russia, in Moscow in particular, in um, I think it's 14, uh, 1453, I guess is the, the date that they, they you know, dated from. Uh, and he proved beyond a shadow of the doubt because there was a, a, uh, a case that came up in an international court when uh, the, so when is the Soviet Union and their allies in fraternal Poland and the Poles sued the Soviets for right over the word vodka. And he's the guy who went into the archives and found out that no, in fact, it came from the Soviet Union. It was made in, in, uh, in Russia back in the 1400s. Um, as it turns out, it's all a lie. Uh, and as, when, as soon as you start poking some little, ho- you know, poking some holes in this account, you find that the entire thing crumbles like a, a uh, uh, you know, a house of cards, I suppose. Um, but what's interesting is not only the scholarship is wrong, and that people have been believing it for 20, I guess, since he published his, his work about 20 years ago, uh, but also the backstory. There was never a international, I guess, uh, you know, uh, court case between Poland and the Soviet Union about this. So the entire thing is a fabrication and only in the last year or two have Russian scholars started to realize that this entire thing is a, a complete and utter farce. And so uh, if you're interested in that one in particular, it's, uh, the, I, we did an excerpt of that. It's at salon.com, uh, uh, murder intrigue and the mysterious origins of vodka. If you just go to salon and search vodka, you'll find it pretty quickly. Um, chapter seven changes things up a little bit as well and, and goes from the question of when vodka came about to, to why. Why do Russians drink vodka? There's really no good reason to. Uh, you know, this, uh, th- there's authors in Russia who say that, well, look at, look at all the different drinking cultures you have. You have this blue is sort of the spirits drinking cultures. You got the predominantly beer drinking areas here in kind of brown and then the predominantly wine drinking regions of, of, of Europe. Um, and people say, well, why is that? You know, uh, I say, well, it's, it's all geography. It's all climate. You know, it's down here in the Mediterranean. You have a lot of people growing vines, growing wine, and obviously you're going to have wine down there. Um, uh, and I s- understand that to an to a, a extent, but also if you look at the blue area, this looks very much like a map of uh, 18th century Europe. This is the old Russian Empire are the predominantly spirits drinking areas, and then, you know, the, the, the Scandinavian countries. But... Um, uh, but so part of it is not just the environment, it's not just the climate, because, you know, the difference in climate between Berlin and Tallinn is not all that different. Uh, it also is a political story. And so I spend a lot of time looking at, uh, you know, the, the history of distillation when it comes to Russia uh, and uh, how it sort of gets entrenched and becomes a very lucrative uh, trade for the, uh, for the Russian Empire and then for the Soviet Union uh, beyond that. So... Um, Chapter 8 goes into, uh, again, kind of changes things up a little bit. So this is uh, Alexei Navalny. If you follow the news, you probably uh, recognize him. He's the uh, contemporary anti, uh, anti-corruption, anti-Putin crusader. Who, there he is getting arrested for, for giving a speech, I think it is. Um, and he's railing against corruption. A lot of people suggest that corruption in Russia is, is, is horrible. Yeah, it is. Uh, but some people, like uh, Navalny, would say, oh, this is you know, an outcome of Putin's era. Well... No, and then other people would say, well, it came before him. It came from Yeltsin. No, it wasn't the lawlessness of that because in people in Yeltsin's time, they were saying it came from the Soviet Union. Well, in the Soviet Union, people were saying, this is the degeneracy of the old order. Well, and then you go back even further. You go all the way back to, there's this great quote from Tsar uh, Nicholas, the, Nicholas the, uh, the first in the, the uh, 1840s. Uh, he tried to do an inquiry into corruption in his kingdom. Uh, and he came to the lamentable conclusion that he was indeed the only non-corrupt person in his entire realm. Um, and so a lot of it goes back to the method through which they administered the alcohol trade. Uh, they essentially farmed it out. It was a tax farm system that you would outsource the tax collection, revenue collection, to individuals uh, who were empowered by the states uh, to raise as much money as they could. And they used some very devious and underhanded tactics. They would water down the vodka to get you know, more of it out there. They would uh, you know, buy things, they would take uh, payment in pawn and so on. And there are all sorts of different things. So in chapter eight, I looked at how it really, if you're looking for the roots of corruption in Russia, it goes back to alcohol and this administration of the old imperial tax farm. And it kind of just uh, goes from there. This is a, an illustration from uh, David Christian's book, uh, which I have right here, Living Water, uh, from the, the 1900s, uh, showing sort of the, the corruption-generating machine, uh, how it goes in and, and subverts you know, the local ministries, the police, the judiciary, uh, institutions of local self-government. It all comes from the vodka monopoly. And, so, uh, and uh, D- David Christian, if you didn't know, was uh, on Colbert last night. Um, so he's in his, 
he's got this, this big history thing uh, that uh, he was actually on campus at Villanova, was it two years ago? And uh, to give this big presentation. Uh, but in his previous uh, academic incarnation, he was a scholar of Russian vodka history. So um, anyway, uh, from there we move on, look at uh, the emancipation of, of the serfs to the extent that uh, you, know, you have the, the serf population uh, you know, be, being freed in the 1860s, uh, but also to the extent that you still have, yes, uh, you know, nominally they were free, um, but the, they were still essentially subservient to the interests of the, the alcohol monopoly to the point where you have even uh, Tsar Nicholas II, these are sort of contemporary political cartoons, uh, essentially uh, the, the king on top of this cask of alcohol with all of his subjects drunk and, and in ruination. So. Uh, it was essentially the way that you had the upward distribution of wealth from the poorer classes uh, to the richer classes. And as you can probably imagine, you know, if, if you're writing a book that says, you know, that this is the way, that the alcohol monopoly is the way that the rich got rich and the poor got miserable, um, you know, you're going to have this, uh, the accusations that you're just some sort of, you know, filthy, stinking communist. Um, and uh, the corollary to that is that, well, if this really, really was the way, you know, the primary mechanism which wealth in Russia and the Russian Empire kind of flowed from the, from the, you know, from the poor to the rich, wouldn't some of these guys have noticed that? Wouldn't, you know, Marx and Engels, although they never wrote about Russia, wouldn't they talk about it? Actually, Engels talked a lot about alcohol uh, in, uh, in the European context, in the, in the British context. Uh, but actually, Lenin and a whole band of revolutionaries used alcohol quite a bit as a symbol of the degeneracy of the old order. And they couldn't exactly say that. So they would hide it in their literature, which is why in the 1800s, when you have all these great Russian writers, they were not only literary critics, but they were essayists, and you know, they would write all sorts of uh, fiction as well. So they all would subsume sort of these subtexts to get things by the censors. And one of the things that they did across the board was to use alcohol as a symbol of the degeneracy of the old autocratic order. So guys from uh, Chernyshevsky, and I go through this in the book, to, to Dostoevsky, to Turgenev, to Leo Tolstoy, these are people with dramatically different political uh, affiliations. You've got sort of the more revolutionary ones over here uh, with, with Chernyshevsky. You've got more uh, nationalist, uh, conservative, uh, arch-conservatives when it comes to, uh, to guys like Tolstoy. But all the way across the board, all of them were critics of the autocracy, and all of them talked about the degeneracy of alcohol in, in, uh, in Russia. So, um, so yeah, if there's an extent to which, uh, you know, that this has some similarities with the rise of, uh, I guess, that, that pro- um, you know, I guess the, the pro-socialist movement, uh, there is some parallels there because it's in a subtext to all of these great writings. And so I spend a lot of time in, in this particular chapter doing some literary investigation and finding the, uh, essentially following the alcohol code. I call it, you know, sort of the, uh, the vodka code. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's not exactly a Dan Brown novel, but it, it kind of works uh, that way as well. So, um, or, yep. Yeah, that's a great line. It's true, you know. So I, I use that as much as I, as I possibly can. I'm kind of running behind, so I, I'll, I'll kind of fast forward through some of these. Uh, chapter 11 looks at the role that alcohol plays in Russia's disastrous showings in a number of wars. Uh, first with the, uh, uh, I guess Napoleon. I guess not as disastrous for the Russians in this case. Uh, but the role that alcohol played in lighting Moscow on fire in 1812, uh, so that Napoleon has to head back across the vast European uh, continent. Uh, the role that it played in uh, Russia's disastrous uh, encounters in, in the Crimea uh, in the 1850s, um, and also in the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, this, is, this is a great picture that came from this Puck magazine um, of caricature of Russia uh, going after this, uh, it says running amok, going after the Japanese here. He's clutching a bottle that says vodka right on it. Uh, and is essentially just slashing and burning on his way through. Interesting thing is that um, as part of the Russo-Japanese War, uh, Russia's Pacific fleet got completely decimated. Uh, and so one of the great ideas that they had was that we have this great fleet here in the Baltic. So why don't we take this fleet of destroyers and ships out of the Baltic, you know, through, uh, through the, the, the Baltic, uh, around through the North Sea, down around the Horn of Africa, across India, and up and, and meet those Japanese. And so, great idea, you know, uh, turned out to me not such a good idea. But along the way, essentially everybody was drinking and hallucinating. They had thought that um, the Japanese had gotten wind of their plan because there were spies everywhere. And they had sent their Pacific fleets down through the Straits and across, you know, uh, India and then around the Horn of Africa and then back up the other side to meet Russia uh, outside the Dogger Banks, outside of... Um, 
in the North Sea between, uh, between England and, uh, and Denmark. Uh, and so they saw these ships and they were sure that these were, and everybody had been drinking you know, quite a bit, um, they were just certain that this was the entire Japanese military that had come to, to decimate them. So they opened fire with everything they've got. Uh, and it turns out to be a bunch of British fishing trawlers. Um, and actually, they end up missing most of them. But you know, a couple of them die. But this is, you know, this is why you've got uh, you know, the, uh, the little British guy over here, John Bull, uh, is, is there because uh, it almost started a war. You know, the fact that you had this, this drunken fleet that was out there. So, uh, so alcohol almost starts wars in the Russian history as well. Um, chapter 12 looks at uh, sort of the interpersonal rivalries and uh, parts of the, the old, um, I guess, royal family, the old Romanov dynasty under Nicholas II. Uh, because, and this was one of the things that was the puzzle of, of my previous book, uh, The Political Power of Bad Ideas, um, is that if it, Russia was the first country in the world to enact statewide prohibition, national prohibition. Um, which is strange because if you have an explanation for why countries have prohibition, they say, well, you need a temperance movement. Uh, but you didn't have a temperance movement in Russia because that was seen as potentially undermining the, uh, the, the finances of the state. Uh, so they had done whatever they could to, to you know, keep temperance out and, and you know, keep the autocracy in order. Uh, but they become the first country in the world to enact prohibition. Uh, why? Well, as it turns out, and this comes, uh, these revelations come from uh, some research that I did in the, in the archives, um, the day that Nicholas II here uh, enacts a na nationwide prohibition uh, in the early days of World War I uh, is essentially a symbolic gesture to his favorite uncle. This is uh, Konstantin Konstantinovich Romanov. Um, he was his, uh, again, favorite uncle. Uh, Konstantin Konstantinovich had a son, Oleg Konstantinovich. Uh, he was the only uh, Romanov member of the, the royal family to volunteer to fight in World War I. Uh, and he was the only one to die in World War I. A lot of them die you know, from other things later on, but to die in battle in, in World War I. Uh, and so the day that, uh, and Konstantin Konstantinovich is something of a teetotaler. He, he's sort of this uh, temperance guy. Uh, so the day that uh, Nicholas II finds out about the death of Oleg Konstantinovich, he writes a telegram to Konstantin Konstantinovich declaring that he's instituting prohibition forever in Russia. Um, this is, you know, very nice gesture, uh, but also there's a reason that most countries don't get rid of their largest source of income as they're going into the largest conflagration mankind had ever known. Uh, getting, a, you know, 1.5 million men into the field costs a lot of money, uh, and when essentially you blow uh, one-third of your entire revenue, uh, bad things happen. Hyperinflation happens. Uh, and a number of other things. And so that's what I continue on in, in chapter 13. And I make the argument that alcohol and uh, essentially is at the root of a lot of these different causes, that structural causes that people attribute to uh, the Russian, uh, the collapse of the, the old order. Uh, hyperinflation, discontent with the czar, um, the breakdown of the urban rural trade cycle, all of that actually has its roots in, in alcohol and alcoholization. So that's what I argue, <laughs> argue there. Going a little bit faster here. Uh, chapter 14 looks at uh, sort of the wet-dry divisions. Um, as a noted revolutionary and a man of his word, Vladimir Lenin was a teetotaler because that was, you know, alcohol is the way the man keeps you down, so we're just going to, to not do that. Um, but you also find the roots of alcohol and alcohol politics in this early age of uh, the Soviet Union uh, quite a bit as well. Uh, Iron Felix Dzerzhinsky, the head of the well, what would become the KGB, the NKVD, the Cheka, the secret police, was actually an organization that was there to root out alcohol stores in, in uh, Petrograd because that was the kind of thing that um, would incite counter-revolution. And we don't want those bourgeois folks toppling our revolution by getting everybody drunk, uh, so we have to ruthlessly and with a great amount of terror make sure that they don't have that sort of thing going on. So even the roots of the KGB uh, has to do quite a bit with, uh, with alcohol. Uh, and a lot of the interpersonal rivalries in uh, the Politburo of the time essentially fall very neatly down this sort of wet-dry division. Um, so Lenin was very much dry. Uh, Stalin, as we already found out, was extremely wet. Um, and uh, other ones, you know, Leon Trotsky in particular, uh, was wanted to carry on with the revolution, carry on that revolutionary zeal and that revolutionary abstinence there. There's a revolution in 1879. He dies in 1940. Ice pick to the head. So, because um, you know, that's how he goes. Uh, chapter 15 looks at sort of the, the role of alcohol in industrialization and collectivization and, and sort of the, the way these all things uh, sit together and the home brewing of alcohol. Um, you know, these are some uh, propaganda posters looking at how much, uh, how much in, in um, 
different, uh, I guess, uh, grains are essentially sacrificed to homebrew, even though there is nominally prohibition at this point in time, uh, to the somogonchik, the, the homebrewer, or could it go to feeding everyone? You know, so, uh, so that was sort of the, the, the crux of industrialization as well, had a lot to do with alcohol. Uh, chapter 16 uh, looks at alcohol and descent in the old Soviet system. Yeah, we've got uh, the leadership over here. You've got your Brezhnev. You've got your uh, Khrushchev before then. Um, but what's interesting, and it also an interesting parallel to the sort of golden age of, of Russian literature, while the man, you know, the state itself was very much promoting alcohol and alcoholization, uh, the dissenters were by and large completely abstinent and, and dry and were always pointing out the use, instrumental use of alcohol by the state uh, to keep people down and to keep people drunk and atomized. And so uh, Sakharov, Solzhenitsyn uh, were always uh, were dry of dry personal temperament, but they also highlighted this in their, their writings quite a bit, as did sort of foreign demographers uh, and, uh, and writers. Uh, chapter 70 essentially extends this out into the, the present, er, excuse me, into the, um, uh, the Gorbachev era. looks at those ages of sort of the interregnum between the, uh, the end of Brezhnev in 1982 and, uh, into, and the, the rise of, of Gorbachev uh, in 1985. Uh, and what was interesting is that I spent a lot of time looking at the, the Politburo discussions and sort of the, the interpersonal politics. And again, a very stark, wet, dry divide. And some people suggest that, well, you know, after uh, you know, Brezhnev dies, then we get on drop off. And he turns around and, and dies and, and gives way to Chernyenko, who the very first thing that he does, the first policy he enacts is his own death uh, because these guys are old and decrepit. Uh, and they say, well, you know, we've had enough of that. It's the choice of a new generation. You've got uh, Gorbachev, he's much younger. There was no other option. Actually, there are a lot of other options. And a lot of other options were kind of in the old drunken system uh, of, this is Grigory Romanov, he was one of, uh, probably the, the primary contender uh, for the top spot with Mikhail Gorbachev, and he got drunk all the time, you know, and so it was, it was one of these things that was, um, the big choice was like, okay, do we do this guy, you know, he's young, yes, uh, so kind of a new generation, but this guy's young too, and he's a drop-dead alcoholic. Um, so uh, there were guys like uh, Gromyko, in particular the foreign minister, and a number of others, essentially rallied around Gorbachev because they'd worked with him, because he was effective, and because he didn't drink like the other guys. And so, um, and one of, one of the outcomes that people kind of gloss over uh, when they talk about sort of the history of, of the Soviet Union uh, is that they want to get to Gorbachev. And we've got to talk about perestroika and glasnost and these momentous uh, reforms that he instituted. But the very first thing that Gorbachev did when he came to power was institute an anti-alcohol campaign in the name of labor discipline, in the name of getting people you know, out of the ditches and back into their jobs where they actually work as opposed to just drinking on the job and so on uh, to try to fix the system quite a bit. And for his, uh, for, you know, for his... Um, uh, works. He's, he's actually had uh, uh, a pretty good sense of humor about it. And so the, the chapter, chapter 18, which is all about this, it's kind of built around a bunch of jokes. And uh, uh, even in, amidst this anti-alcohol campaign where people were fed up with uh, the mineralny secretary, the, the mineral water secretary who forced them to drink mineral water instead of vodka, uh, he even went on international TV and was cracking jokes about vodka and about himself. This is my favorite. So, yeah, um, but what's interesting, another interesting parallel here is that just as you could highlight the instrumental role of alcohol in bringing down the old autocratic order in uh, the Romanov period, you can make the same argument that uh, all of a sudden this dramatic anti-alcohol restrictions uh, blew a giant hole, one-fourth of the entire Soviet budget, um, and uh, which since they didn't have a lot of different financial options or instruments at that point in time, the only option was to turn on the printing press. 
Uh, and so between that and sort of the drop in the global price of oil and uh, the cost of cleaning up Chernobyl and uh, the, uh, you know, the earthquake in Armenia and so on, uh, really it is also important to highlight not only how this anti-alcohol campaign kind of fits together with these other reforms of, uh, of uh, Glasnost and Perestroika, uh, but also to the extent that they helped undermine the system and the reforms he was trying to implement uh, himself there. So from 18 we go into 19. Uh, and I have to have an entire chapter just about Boris Yeltsin. I mean, how could you not? You know, the guy is so gift-ready. You know, I've got all these just great uh, examples. Uh, and there's not a, a Russian leader who's more synonymous with drunken excess uh, in the West than, uh, than Boris Yeltsin. Yeah, so... Uh, so what's interesting about Boris Yeltsin is that everybody says, oh, that guy is just such a drunk, you know, probably the drunkest leader in all of Russian history. Um, I disagree. And a lot of actually biographers suggest just the opposite. Not that he was sober by any means, but as he's, you know, conducting this uh, German band in Berlin in 1984 or 1996, you know, dancing with these guys. Actually, he was sober for that. Or hanging out with Bill Clinton back in the day. Um, but that his alcohol which, uh, use, which was essentially inculcated as part of his upbringing in the Soviet system, uh, was suddenly on display for everyone to see. Uh, in fact, I, I would suggest that you know, Yeltsin probably drank less than Chernyanko or Brezhnev or Stalin. Um, but those guys, their foibles did not exactly play out in front of world cameras. And so, uh, so yeah, he drank a lot. But there's a little bit more to the story than, uh, than that. Uh, and we'll see more of Yeltsin going forward. Um, chapter 20 is interesting. This uh, it's 24 chapters, we'll get into it, um, is uh, about sort of the collapse of the Soviet Union and this uh, notion of what I call demodernization. Uh, and there's this great guy online, if you go do TED Talks and, and, and whatnot, uh, this guy named Hans Rosling. Here he is. He also swallows swords in his spare time at his, his TED Talk in 2011. Uh, Swedish economist, and he has this thing called the Gapminder. It's gapminder.org, the Gapminder Foundation. And what they do is sort of bridge the gap between sort of the social science data that's out there and sort of the way that we consume it. Um, and one of the things that they have done is, is really fascinating. I've, I've played with this thing for way too long, um, is that they have this app uh, on, on gapminder.org where you can uh, look at the social science data for all sorts of different indicators for every country on earth going back, uh, in some cases, 200 years. Uh, and one of the things that he points out, and this is the animation that we have here, uh, is that if you take uh, uh, and make a graph of, on this side we have income per person, so an indicator of wealth of your country, uh, and over here life expectancy, average life expectancy, so an indicator of health of your country, is that you notice a long-term trajectory of all these different countries gradually over time moving into what he calls the healthy, wealthy corner, which is where all countries aspire to be. Uh, this is not what happens in Russia after the collapse of communism. In fact, just the opposite. So this is the United States up here going over here. But if you watch till 1990, 91, you'll see a bunch of these kind of go boom like this. They go uh, kind of retrograde motion and not only gets uh, more sickly, but more poor as well. Uh, so I looked at that as an instance of what we, uh, I refer to as, as demodernization. Um, so I, I try to make a graph of these because you can't exactly animate the pages of a book when you're going to publish it. Otherwise, I would have done something like that. Um, but some people say, well, what Russia went through after the collapse of communism was, was really awful. You know, the economy's in the toilet and whatnot. Uh, it's kind of like what Japan, is a, a lost decade like, like Japan had. It's like, well, if you look at the indicators, kind of those little dots that we had there, uh, Japan, if you go from 1980 to 2000, is still making, is slowing down to be sure, but it's making progress towards that healthy, wealthy corner. And people say, no, no, other, other people say, no, 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 it wasn't like Japan. It was, it was like uh, the Great Depression, United States and the Great Depression. And so uh, we've got indicators for that as well. If you look from 1920 to about 1940, uh, you can kind of see America's health and wealth indicators going this way. And here's the Great Depression. It goes this way. So, yeah, uh, Great Depression, economies in the toilet, people are poor off, uh, as, it, as it turns out. But ironically, they're getting healthier uh, during that, that period. Uh, by comparison, also, uh, I have Russia, what I call this demodernization, where you have very significant sort of retrograde motion down to the, to the poor and sick uh, area here. So a dramatic decrease in life expectancy, dramatic loss of uh, wealth as well. Um, and so I spend a lot of time exploring that. And of course, alcohol has a lot to do with, uh, with that as well. 
because it's not like every country that had to make a transition from communism and an administrative command economy to democracy in the market went through this sort of thing. Uh, only those countries that had that long-lasting legacy of being under Soviet alcohol domination and the Russian Empire ahead of that. So uh, I, I just have a couple of them here, but Russia, you can see it kind of goes this way. Here's the indicators for Ukraine, same sort of thing. If you look at the Baltic states, they all have the same pattern. Uh, but if you look at other countries with different alcohol histories, uh, Poland does, you know, it's got a little bit of a, a kink backwards here before making its way back up this way. Czech Republic doesn't even go that way. It doesn't uh, go dip that far at all. It just continues to meander upwards. And so I think a lot of what we have here and why this transition was so hard for Russia, especially on a demographic side, um, is predominantly due to, uh, to alcohol. So that's what I look at there. And finally, the last one is uh, this, uh, what's, uh, chapter 21 looks at the, what I call the Russian cross. So this is a, a demographic term, and it doesn't mean the Russian Orthodox cross, not talking about Christianity. Um, but uh, the demographic indicators that come with the collapse of communism. Here you have uh, deaths in the Russian Federation, births in the Russian Federation uh, over time from the 70s uh, through, uh, through 2012. And you can see, this is actually the anti-alcohol campaign. You have a, a sudden upshot in the number of births and a decrease in the number of deaths. But when uh, the Soviet Union collapses, you have this striking reversal. This is, this is unlike anything ever seen in human history, no, except in wars. This is something that happens when a country loses a war. You have something that happens like this, where people are dying in vast numbers and nobody's being born. Uh, and this leads to uh, a, a massive demographic problem. Your country is actually shrinking because so many more people are dying than are being born. And this has b huge ramifications for Russia uh, going forward. So anyway, so I promised to talk a little bit about Putin and the contemporary situation. And one of the things that we have to understand about Putin, uh, you know, is that we think about him as, you know, I guess he was just recently, was it Forbes' most powerful man on earth or something like that? He's got Superman thing on his... Uh, when he came to power in 1999 and 2000, he, the, the country was in shambles. Uh, you know, the leader that he was replacing, Boris Yeltsin, was drunk. Um, and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of hope for the future. So how do we go from that uh, to this? You know, Times Man of the Year, all that stuff. And if we can do it, you know, in, in 15, 20 minutes, uh, that would probably be a good idea. Um, so a lot of people look at the system. They say, okay, what, what do we have in contemporary Russia? It's Putinism, Putinomics. What is it? You know, what, what goes into it? And so instead of doing sort of a question and answer, I did this online and with some of my friends, uh, both from Russia and the United States. And I said, well, you know, it, if you talk about Putin, what comes to mind? I was like, well, he's, he's not a Democrat, that's for sure. Uh, so something autocratic in here. There's an oligarchy. There's uh, rich people behind there. There's nepotism. There's corruption. Um, and, uh, but other people, especially my Russian friends, say also th this word in, in Russian is stabilnost, stability. He's brought in stability to Russia. He's brought in some degree of, uh, you know, economic um, resurrection, um, bringing Russia from this era of, of utter poverty and destitution uh, to some degree of prosperity, which Russians are, are seeing nowadays, uh, but also some, uh, uh, some greater centralization of power. Uh, and the last thing that people look at is, is the role that it plays in the economy is these so-called national champion companies. Uh, you might be familiar with some of them, Gazprom, uh, world's largest company, you know, Rosneft, Rosatom, the Russian Atomic Energy Agency, all on his face there for some reason. Ran out of places for these things. Um, and they say, well, you know, you have these national champion companies that are owned 51% by the, the Russian state that put the interests of the state above everything else. Um, and what I found is that, you know, the very first of these national champion companies that, that Putin sort of helps to, uh, helps to create was actually about vodka, of course, has to be. Um, before, you know, the, the recentralization of, of Gazprom and Rosneft and so on. Um, so I wanted to tell you a little bit about this uh, centralization of power um, from the old era, from their, our buddy Boris Yeltsin back in the day. So, uh, so one of the things, I guess, to, to take a step back into Russian history, at the, at the time when Boris Yeltsin and these other republic leaders are trying to get away from the, uh, out from under the, uh, the, the umbrella of the Soviet system of, of Mikhail Gorbachev, um, they were pushing for a devolution of power to the Russia's regions, to the Soviet Union's regions, and uh, to, to the local uh, governors and so on. Um, so he would go around, even as, as the president of the Russian Federation um, within the Soviet system, and tell his people, essentially the, the regional leaders, take as much sovereignty as you can swallow. 
And the idea was that we need to weaken the center. We need to weaken Gorbachev. We need to get rid of Gorbachev. We need to get rid of the Soviet Union. And that's kind of what, when, when uh, eventually the Soviet Union does fall apart and um, uh, Yeltsin becomes you know, president of, of uh, all of Russia, is that he inherits an incredibly weak state where all the political power is broadcast out into the, uh, into the countryside. Um, so a lot of the responsibility for the day-to-day, -day, you know, paying of pensioners and teachers and workers and so on goes to the governors, but they don't have a whole lot of money. Um, so that's one thing that you have with this devolution of power. Uh, but you also have his marketization reforms. And so you have this radical turnover, you know, this headlong rush towards privatization and the market and so on. Uh, you have deregulation. Uh, and even that happens to the, the old imperial, excuse me, the old vodka monopoly is suddenly marketized. Suddenly there's a free market in alcohol as long as you pay the, uh, the requisite taxes. Um, so I think probably the best illustration of what happens next is this guy right here. This is the governor of, of Pskov, uh, Evgeny Mikhailov. Uh, Pskov, if you're interested, is this area right uh, near the Baltic, right near St. Petersburg, borders on Estonia, Latvia, Belarus. Um, and essentially what he does is what a lot of governors do at this point in time, and that's essentially make their own vodka monopolies. Uh, so he uses uh, what in Russia they euphemistically call uh, administrative resources, uh, which involves you know, twisting some arms, throwing some elbows, um, and takes this old cannery that was making uh, fish, I think it was, uh, that was uh, way behind on his tax, uh, tax uh, duties, essentially seizes it on behalf, um, behalf of the, the local governorate um, uh, and essentially turns it into a vodka maker. And so he was able to subsidize the raw materials that go into that through the state. Um, and by doing so, was able to undercut any, you know, he could sell alcohol uh, from this sort of monopoly uh, producer uh, a lot cheaper than anybody else could, you know, on, on the unregulated market. Uh, so this, what happens is that you end up having not only a, a sort of retail monopoly, but also becomes a production monopoly. Um, and this, all governors uh, like, uh, like Mikhailov here and those throughout Russia fall into what economists call a revenue trap, is that uh, you have this monopoly, uh, it's your primary source of income, and it's hard to get away from that because there are no other alternatives for you to, you know, again, Keep, uh, keep pensioners paid, keep uh, teachers paid, and so on and so forth. Um, and so this is, uh, this is, I guess, the combination of this legacy of, of vodka politics, except you know, multiplied 100 times across Russia's uh, you know, uh, 11 time zones. And probably the best indic indicator I have of this is, this is, this is a great picture. Um, this is the, the Cristal Distillery in Moscow. It looks like uh, Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. It's, it's just iconic, uh, right downtown Moscow. Um, and um, I have the, an entire chapter that uh, essentially revolves around some of the, the things that happen about this Cristal distillery uh, right about the time of uh, Putin's rise to power. Um, back in the old Yeltsin days, uh, it was 51% owned by the governor, uh, I guess the, the mayor of Moscow, uh, Yuri Lushkov, or at least the, governor, or the, the, uh, the city of Moscow. Uh, and it was essentially given this medal as Russia's outstanding taxpayer of 1999. Uh, which is crazy for what happens next. Um, in early 2000, shortly after the inauguration of Vladimir Putin, uh, you have a raid by the tax police. A raid by the tax police on their own outstanding taxpayer of 1999. Uh, and so you have the, uh, the, the old incumbent leader of the, the Cristal Distillery who's holed up uh, in his offices and has an armed guard, uh, you know, a whole bunch of armed guards, about 20 guys, uh, all in green fatigues. Uh, and then you have the tax police, which are all in blue fatigues, um, trying to install a new, uh, essentially, president of this thing. And, and they all have got court documents one way or the other. Uh, and then you, for a month, you have this comical situation where you have uh, armed guards on both sides, you know, with AK-47s and so on, trying to, you know, and two people claiming that they control this, uh, this, this uh, vodka producer. And still, as is going on, two million bottles of vodka uh, still produced uh, every month that go, go through there. Um, ultimately, what happens is that uh, one of the, uh, the court documents that they have on the judges essentially reverses himself inexplicably and says, uh, Mikhail, or the, um, uh, Svirsky, who is the, the old um, leader of the, uh, of, of the distillery, you're out, uh, this other guy is in. And this other guy is the representative of the federal tax police, representative of the federal government, representative of the Putin government. Uh, and so in this sort of what becomes known as Raiderstvo, uh, essentially calling in the tax police, 
uh, in sort of a corporate raid uh, in, in, in the, on behalf of the state, this becomes common practice in, in Russia. And this is the way that you have the reassertion of federal control uh, over the economics of a lot of these different areas. So all throughout Russia, you have tax raids on all of these different um, uh, distilleries, all these local um, uh, ones, and even into the ones that I guess make headlines nowadays. You know, so the 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 uh, Yukos uh, and sort of the arrest of Mikhail Khodorkovsky follows the same pattern. NTV and, and that gets sold off to uh, to Gazprom. Same thing. It's the pattern that started all with this uh, this crystal uh, thing. And the thing that came out of it, it was that there was a larger plan behind this. Is that this was sort of the crown jewel in a new national champion company. It was supposed to be a Gazprom for vodka. It was supposed to be called Rospirtprom, which in Russian is just Russian spirits industry. So um, what's interesting is that uh, a lot of people say, well, no, if you're talking about centralization of power, where that really happens under Putin is about 2004, where after the horrible uh, tragedy at, at Beslan, where he had a, a botched uh, rescue attempt uh, on a um, uh, essentially a school that was being held by Chechen terrorists and 300 children die. Um, they say, well, after that, uh, there were a number of centralizing reforms. You had the appointment of governors. They would no longer be elected to try and keep some, you know, uh, keep everybody in line. You had Kremlin representatives in all these different areas. Um, and, uh, but actually where it comes from originally is undercutting the finances of all these different governors by uh, taking away their primary, uh, their primary uh, financial instrument there. So what's interesting in all this, and we've got Putin over here, and as we all know, he likes his judo, um, he's a big, big judo guy, uh, is exactly how this sort of thing went down. Um, and recently, some of his inner circle of economic advisors, uh, Andrei Ilarinov, uh, Herman Greff, Alexei Kudrin, they've actually been talking a little bit about this now, how this whole thing went down. Um, and they were kept completely in the dark that the single largest taxpayer and the single largest uh, industry that they had at that point in time was being centralized without their knowledge. And so Ilarinov says, I soon realized that for Putin, there are two distinctly separate groups of people. Let's call them the economics group versus the business people. Uh, so with the one group, Kudrin and Greff and, and, and myself, uh, Putin discussed the issues of the general economy, while with the help of the other, he seized control over property and financial flows. Um, which is interesting because the people that he puts in charge of this, for whatever reason, all revolve around judo. Uh, something about this Yawara Neva uh, Judo Club, which is w the one that he founded in St. Petersburg. Uh, and he puts his buddy, a longtime judo pal, Arkady Rotenberg, in charge of, uh, in charge of this Ross Spirit problem. Um, and so they actually did an interview of Rotenberg uh, just a couple of years ago. And they're giving him some sort of lead in. It's like, so you've got a lot of money now. And you know Putin really well. What's up with that? You know, and so he says, well... <laughs> I understand the subtext of your question. He says, knowing high-level government officials has never been an impediment to business in our country, but is hardly a guarantee of success. After all, Putin knows far more people than those who become famous and successful today. Yeah, so uh, it could have been anybody that, that explains uh, a, a dramatic turnaround. So uh, just a little fun and games here. You had two guys who were in charge of this raw spirit prom um, at, at the very outset. I want to see kind of money. I got the money song in the background there. Um, Two guys who are in charge, uh, Sergei Zivenko and Arkady Rotenberg. I want to give you play a little game as to how much money do you think they made. Uh, Zivenko uh, at 2000 uh, gets before he was essentially handpicked to head up this raw spirit problem, uh, had less than a million dollars in his pockets. Uh, he was out in two years, so he was in and out. Uh, and how much do you think he's worth in uh, by, by the year 2002? From 2000 to 2002, how much? A billion? Not quite that much, but. 60? Well, I'll keep it, uh, keep it <laughs> since we're running out of time. Uh, he went from less than a million dollars to, uh, to being worth $220 million uh, pretty much overnight. Uh, and then, of course, you diversify when you make some money. And so now he's got a $400 million a year vodka company on top of that. So he makes, he's, not, he's not hurting for money. Uh, Arkady Rotenberg is even more interesting. He goes from uh, less than a million dollars, um, you know, being the, the right-hand man to, to uh, Vladimir Putin. Uh, by 2009, uh, he's up to $1.1 billion. Um, and the, the recent ones, the Forbes uh, list just came out. Uh, and so 2013, he's now up to $3.3 billion. Uh, so you can see, this was his foot in the door. Obviously, he diversifies his holdings, and he becomes an uh, investor in Gazprom and a lot of other things. But, uh, uh, but 
interesting that, you, again, looking through the lens of vodka, a lot of this you know, starts to make a little bit of sense. Gives you some behind the scenes insights into what goes on in, in, in Russia. Um, what's weird about this whole thing is that uh, Rust Beard Prom really isn't around anymore. Uh, there was a series of regulations, well-meaning regulations, in 2006 that completely destroyed Rust Spirit Prom. Um, that they were supposed to institute restrictions that all vodka bottles had to have these new excise stamps to show that the taxes had been paid. Um, but uh, the stamps, stamps weren't ready and there were other restrictions that said that you can't sell anymore on credit. Well, this was really bad to a national champion company that essentially sells to everybody on credit because it's in the interest of the state rather than the interest of the marketplace. Um, so essentially, uh, the government essentially revokes the license of its own national champion company and bankrupts Rust Spirit Prom. It became to the point where it was not lucrative for them to be able to sell vodka to Russians, which is mind-blowing. Uh, so they get a bailout from Vinesh Torg Bank, which is headed by Alexei Kudrin. Uh, so he reluctantly bails them out. Um, and a couple years later sells it to this other guy uh, who's worth about $3 billion, uh, Vasily Anisimov, um, who doesn't even want this vodka. You know, and so he's in, in these interviews, um, he was asked about uh, vodka. He just called it a troublesome product. He, didn't, he has no interest in vodka whatsoever. He was essentially just strong-armed into paying a couple million dollars for uh, this, uh, this Royal Spirit Prom. Um, and as thanks, Putin made him president of the Yuara Neva uh, Judo thing. He has no interest in Judo, has never done Judo, but now since he owns Royal Spirit Prom, uh, he's the judo guy. So, uh, so, but the interesting thing about this, and this is getting us back to the, uh, the Cristal distillery, this iconic facade here, uh, is that uh, Anisimov and his daughter, who is kind of this Paris Hilton socialite in New York City, uh, they've been spending a lot of time buying up uh, Manhattan real estate and stuff out on Long Island, uh, and they've really gotten into sort of American uh, real estate. Uh, and sort of that has kind of flowed over to their interest back in Russia. And for them, this 86 acres of territory, prime real estate, right in downtown Moscow, uh, is just too, uh, too, too lucrative to pass up. So uh, actually, starting next year, they are going to be bulldozing this iconic uh, crystal distillery uh, to make room for luxury condominiums. So, uh, so that's the end of, I guess, the, the crystal uh, debacle. So. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to give you that little sense since we're running out of time here of uh, kind of what goes on behind the scenes and sort of these interpersonal rivalries that are there. Um, unfortunately, I won't have much time to get into to the rest of the stuff, but I really wanted to at least highlight the demographic problems that this causes. Uh, Russia's foremost alcohol researcher, Dr. Alexander Nemtsov in 2009 says, you know, you don't have to know anything about Putin's Russia to understand the value that they place on human life. He says, all you need to know are these three numbers, 58.5, 13.5, and 16.5. 58.5 is the average male life expectancy of a Russian uh, in the 1990s. Um, and a lot of that comes from the massive amounts of alcohol that was, uh, that was being consumed. 13.5 was the number of years earlier that Russian men died than Russian women which is the biggest gap in the world, and that's also an indicator of distilled spirits uh, consumption. Uh, and 16.5 are the number of years earlier, on average, that Russian men die than uh, men throughout all of Western Europe. And so, with just these three numbers, you can easily infer, uh, infer the seriousness of the consequences of Russian drinking. We're forced to confront the reality that the alcohol situation in the country is catastrophic, and the government has done almost nothing about it. Uh, but then, something happens. Yeah, so they did a little bit of that. Uh, so it, as we mentioned at the outset, uh, um, Medvedev institutes an anti-alcohol campaign, a lot of uh, healthy lifestyle propaganda, restricting the hours uh, of sale, locations of sale, ratcheting up excise taxes and so on. Um, and there's, it's had some palpable uh, successes. Uh, there's this, uh, this is a great viral video of this, uh, this drunken squirrel, which is supposed to help you, I guess, work towards temperance. But what's funny is that, you know, this is supposed to teach you about, um, you know, the bad things that happen uh, when you drink a lot, because uh, bielka is uh, the Russian word for squirrel, and it's also the word for delirium tremens, like the shakes that you get right before you pass out. So, um, so that was supposed to be like a, a temperance uh, parable, but then only in Russia, uh, some ingenious uh, guy comes up with uh, squirrel brand vodka. <laughs> <laughs> so you got a rabid squirrel that's coming for you. 
That's not crazy. But, uh, you know, if we look at the social uh, economic indicators, demographic indicators, over time, uh, alcohol-related mortality has gone down. There has been some palpable su uh, successes. Murders have gone down. Suicides have gone down. Alcohol-related mortality has gone down. It's kind of bottoming out, which is kind of worrisome. Uh, but it looks like things are improving, uh, finally, after, after uh, ages and ages. In fact, uh, this was just, I, I just clipped a couple of these out of the, off the, uh, the Internet the last couple of days. Uh, it was just announced uh, last week, Russian alcohol intake has dropped by a fourth since 2010. This sounds great. Uh, sounds great. But if you start to parse out and go a little bit behind the headlines, uh, what you find is that uh, vodka production, a lot of those indicators are, are vodka production numbers, uh, the consumption is actually ratcheting up. Uh, and so the consumption of beers is going down, the consumption of wine is going down, fermented beverages being better uh, you know, on your overall health than, than distilled spirits. Um, and this is worrisome because there are increasing amounts of, of uh, you know, these taxes that are going up, which is making it harder and harder for people to afford vodka. So they go to um, you know, essentially unregulated samagon or uh, uh, bootleg uh, bathtub gin type of thing. Um, and this one is my favorite. It just came up uh, a couple days ago. I found this online. Um, Russian tells cops that the thousand bottles of moonshine that he has in his truck, they're all for personal use. So, <laughs> so he's not running a secret illicit distillery and all this. He's just really thirsty. He's one 500 gallons. So, um, Anyway, so how will it all end? Uh, you know, some people have, have asked about this, and I, I put it in the book as well. Uh, there have traditionally, when you come to an anti-alcohol campaign in Russia, it has two usual ends. Uh, one is that it ends in utter disaster with the end of your empire, uh, as we found with Gorbachev and Nicholas II, uh, or it just kind of gets, uh, you know, withdrawn quietly with a whimper. Or it could be a success. Could happen. You never know. Um, I don't think since, uh, I guess, the amount of financial contributions that alcohol plays on the economy has gone down from a quarter of the overall Soviet economy, now that they have a flat tax income tax and everybody's paying, uh, now that they have uh, oil and natural gas revenues, uh, the contribution of vodka is now down to around 3 to 4% of the budget. So I don't think that this is going to kill uh, the Russian Federation. So, um, so that's kind of out. I, I have my doubts that this is going to be a sustained success, uh, primarily because although Medvedev has some well-intentioned you know, uh, restrictions, a lot of it has to go through these different leaders, uh, you know, these uh, uh, former Prime Minister Zubkov, uh, Golikovo is the former head of the um, essentially health and ser uh, human services. Um, Viktor Zavelsky, uh, uh, Zvagelsky, excuse me there, um, who is the guy who initiates a lot of this legislation. All of it, all these people have personal financial interests in the vodka <laughs> manufacturers in one way or another um, and, uh, and have been trying to essentially uh, beat out any sort of interest in foreign-owned wine and foreign-owned beer uh, to increase the market share of domestic uh, vodka. And then, of course, you have Alexei Kudrin, the former foreign minister, or excuse me, finance minister. Since finance has always been sort of the, the cornerstone of vodka politics, it's usually the finance ministers uh, who end up having, who end up saying uh, sort of ridiculous things. And he's no, um, no exemption there. Uh, so in, in the year 2010, this is great, right at the t beginning of this anti-alcohol campaign, uh, the guy who is credited with steering Russia through the global financial crisis goes on national TV and says this, uh, <laughs> and I quote, he says, uh, Russians should smoke and drink more uh, in the interests of the glory of the Russian state. People should understand that those who drink and those who smoke are contributing more to state finances and giving more to help solve social problems such as boosting demographics and developing other social services and upholding birth rates. Um, so in the middle of an anti-alcohol campaign, you have one of the, the most influential figures in Russia saying, no, go ahead, drink and smoke as much as you can for the greater good of, essentially impale yourself for the greater good of, of the state. Um, and this is, I, I think, probably the, the most direct expression of the central dynamics of vodka politics. Um, even though uh, it was interesting, while I was just in shock when I heard this, as I'm sure a lot of you are. Uh, and sort of the discussion that went on online afterwards, some, some online bloggers su suggested that, one, it's strange how the finance minister of Russia has no idea how budgets work. It's not like, you know, all of a sudden, if you smoke and drink more, more money goes to the government, and that goes immediately to social services. You know, there's no connection between the two. Um, but they also suggested that at least he should win, uh, if they had won, a, a Nobel Prize in honesty. You know, so. um, 
it didn't quite work that way. So ultimately, going forward, uh, what I suggest is that this is might already be too late for Russia. Um, the damage seems to already have been done. If we're looking at sort of what economists talk about in terms of the opportunity costs of all of those people who had died during that, uh, you know, the Russian cross, you know, the people who had uh, died early in the, the lack of birth rates, um, we have, this is the current demographic projection of Russia going forward. As you can see, it's supposed to continue on sort of a, a, a rather downward trend. This is completely opposite to those projections outwards to 2050 that they had uh, before the anti-alcohol campaign of Gorbachev, before the dissolution of the Soviet Union. Um, some of these suggest that Russia, had it continued to grow normally and didn't have the same sort of uh, demodernizing uh, demographic impacts that you had in, in Russia, which they, again, they did not have throughout the former communist areas, uh, Russia would be looking at, by the year 2050, somewhere around 180 million people. Now, you know, if you take like a middle-aged, uh, middle, middle-of-the-range projection, you're looking at 125 million. So you're off by only about 150, uh, I guess, excuse me, around 55 million people gone. And so a lot of the problems that Russia is going to deal with, not only now, but going forward, is going to have to deal with this. The fact that they can't staff their army anymore because there aren't enough healthy conscripts. That's a problem. And that's an outcome of vodka. But if you can only imagine what this would be like, uh, what Russia could be with an additional 55 million healthy individuals, the contributions that they can make to the economy, to the tax base, uh, to the armed forces, to the creative arts, to industry and economics, um, it really is quite a tragedy that, uh, that this is you know, sort of the outcome that we have here. So um, I'll scoot forward here since we're, uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, I do suggest that there might be some alternatives to look into, in particular the experiences of uh, Sweden, so-called municipalization, this, this uh, Gothenburg system, if you will. Um, but I wanted to, to end up with a, a bit of an anecdote, and this is kind of how to conclude the um, the book is uh, this story of Will Rogers. I love Will Rogers, the old cowboy philosopher, vaudeville uh, you know, uh, actor, and so on and so forth. He was also sort of a global goodwill ambassador for the United States. And so back in the 1920s, this is right after the Russian Revolution, he wants to take his, his, uh, uh, his travels and go to the, the new Soviet Union. Uh, but again, being this communist power and the antipathy, they, they don't let him into to Russia. So he does the next best thing. He goes to Paris, where a lot of the emigres of Russia had, had gone. Um, and so he goes to a Russian, uh, to a Russian restaurant in Paris. Uh, and he, for the first time, encounters this mystery substance known as vodka. And most people at that point in time, vodka really doesn't come to the United States until about the 1950s. Uh, so he was trying to explain this to an American audience who had never, ever tried vodka uh, before. Uh, and so this is uh, the way he concludes. He says, uh, you know, this is the most innocent looking thing I ever saw. They just said, uh, they all said, just drink it down at one swig. Nobody can sip vodka. Well, I, I had no idea what the stuff was. And for a second, I thought that somebody had loaded me up with molten lead. And I'd hollered for water. So you can see this illustration of it here. So what he does, and everybody's, you know, staring. He goes and grabs the craft of water off the table and downs it thinking that it's water, as it turns out, it's more vodka. And so he's like burning up and he's like, and everybody's just laughing at him and whatnot. Uh, but he's spent some time sort of ruminating over this. He's, uh, he says that we can understand a lot about Russia through vodka. And he says, you know, how they can concentrate so much insensitivity into a single prescription is almost a chemical wonder. Uh, one tiny sip of this vodka poison, it will do the same amount of uh, damage, uh, material damage to mind and body that an American strives for for hours. Very effective. Uh, so. In conclusion, though, he says, um, as it falls apart, comes back in, um, he says, well, now that I've told you the story of vodka, uh, nobody in the world knows what it's made out of. And the reason I tell you that this, this story is that the story of vodka is a story of Russia. Uh, nobody knows what Russia is made out of or what it's liable to cause its inhabitants to do next. Um, and so I, think, I thought that was particularly fitting to, to wrap things up, is that, yeah, okay, if we're looking at the, the broad sweep of Russian politics and Russian history, not only in the past and the present, but also the project, uh, projections to the future, vodka certainly isn't everything in Russia. Uh, but it is a lot of things. And I think sometimes looking uh, at, through things, uh, through Russian history and through Russian politics, through the bottom of the, uh, through the, bottom of the bottle, actually helps us to understand uh, the significance of um, alcohol problems in Russia uh, and what it means for Russia going forward. So with that, I guess I'll, I'll wrap up.